Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am here with a very exciting guest in Wendy Brookhouse. So Wendy is the chief strategist and founder of Black Star Wealth. We are here to talk about some stuff that a lot of you guys might have some challenges with. I know it's something that I have challenges with, which is how to manage your finances when you're running a business. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Wendy. Super appreciate having you here. Um, so any chance I get to talk about money, Jan, I'm all over it. Okay, gotcha. So let's uh, <laughs> let's get right into it. So um, this is a, I know this is kind of, I thought this was going to be a really, really interesting interview because I, it's something that I think I'm in a pretty similar situation to the listenership as, you know, running a small business and mm-hmm. I have some different advice that's coming from different spheres. Cause it's like a lot okay. of the guys get into the, uh, you know, you just see so much stuff around the personal finance world. A lot of this is directed towards more, you know, career focused people. I come from a super fiscally conservative uh, family. Like uh, my my dad's side of the family were immigrants that came over from the Netherlands. So that's two mm. things in the frugal camp. I understand. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. It's gotcha. second generation. So I've been told, I've been uh, looked at, like I have three heads whenever I talk about the stuff that we're going on business. Uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas is always a nightmare because I'm always being told to save more yet. From all my friends in the business world, I'm always told to invest more. So I know uh, probably a pretty big topic to be like, how do you think about uh, people starting to kind of unwind who to listen to and when, when it comes to Mm. this? Oh my God, that is such a great question. And I think I'd like to go back because I think as entrepreneurs, which we are and your listeners are to most degree, what you just talked about is the conditioning you received as a child, right? And so right. I think of the money messages we received about being frugal, you know, save versus invest. Like that's an underlying uh, operating system you have, almost like on your computer. We don't see our operating systems, but they make everything happen, right? right. So our messages to ourselves around money are our operating system and our unconscious. We don't even know what's going on and yet it's affecting everything we do. So I ask people to think of three questions just to start surfacing the stuff up to the conscious level. What is your first memory of money? What did your parents do with money that you'd like to copy? And what did they do with money that you don't want to do? Yeah. So if you start working through those, you can start surfacing some of the messaging and the programming you have so that you can decide if it's still working for you. Yeah. And that's super interesting too. And, and um, kind of loop this in with just the stuff that's specific to a lot of our listenership too, because it's yes. like, there's a ton of, I think a lot of people are drawn to professions because it's seen as a safe financial move. So it's like a lot mm-hmm. of the people that wind up in, uh, you know, being an attorney, the same people who are being pushed by their parents to be doctors you know, everyone almost says those in the same breath. Usually you're a doctor, you're a lawyer. I find a ton of first, second generation immigrants that are, that are in the profession. And then they have to do this crazy thing where they end up switching gears into the, uh, (laughs) into running a a business that sells law services instead of being an hourly employee. And I think it just spins people's head around like completely. 
So there's uh, many levels there. I totally agree with you because when you think about it, I mean, even if you're a lawyer in a bigger firm, so as soon as you hit partner level, it's it's almost like you're an entrepreneur anyway, right? Because you're expected right. to go out and generate business, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas we're not taught that. Doctors aren't taught about how to set up their practice. Lawyers aren't taught how to set up a practice and be business owners. So you've got that piece there. There's another piece too that comes with that title of lawyer and doctor. All of a sudden, all the people in the world almost think that you know everything. Right. And so what happens is, is then there's a lot of shooting going on. I should know this. I should know that, which actually may prevent you or slow you down from asking for help because by virtue of, oh my gosh, you're a lawyer, you should know how to save, what are the best investment vehicles, et cetera. So it may put this barrier up where you're afraid to ask the questions because people think you should know. Right. And as far as kind of the situation, but it's interesting too, because I think we have one of these situations too. I feel like it's almost easier to develop bad money habits when you have a super, super high paying career. And mm. depending on how far people go up the ladder before they decide to transition out of their you know, law firm, it's like, you could have a situation where somebody's making multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars and probably yep. getting some weird like lifestyle creep going up. So how do you think about that kind of stuff too? Because it's like, you know, I guess it, it's almost worth having almost a stage discussion, I would say. And like, what are the money problems that people might encounter before they start their law firm? I.e. like, you know, being on partner track at a big firm and what kind of problems, how do those change when they end up switching over to, a, you know, a, running a law firm of their own? Okay, so a couple levels. I'm going to bring up those should, the should again because I think that there's a perception if you're on partner trap, or partner trap. Huh? <laughs> Let's not. Yeah, <laughs> I, I might take I might take that one, Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, if you're on the way to partnership. You know, there's a should that I should drive this kind of car. I should wear this type of suit. I should wear the, have this kind of handbag, all these types of things, because we're trying to portray a certain image. So we may end up spending more on those things because you feel it will get you farther into this perceived mecca goal of partnership. So there's that piece. And so you may be overspending there. The second piece is when you move into working for yourself, if you're not disciplined about how you're treating your money and your business, you could run into problems. You could run into problems because now you are responsible for your own tax bills. You are, you know, all this income coming in, it's not all yours. Part of that is the tax department's money. And yeah. they get quite cranky if you don't. Uh, <laughs> They're known to be money. a bit fickle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always look at, I always joke sometimes. I'm like, you know, the tax department is your silent partner in business and life unless you mess up and then they're not so silent anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so when, when you move over into self-employment, uh, you can get overwhelmed. The money in the bank account, if you look at the balance, it's not all yours. You have to be much more careful about managing volatility in your billings type of thing. So if you have a really good month, one month, you don't go spend it all because next month might not be good, right? So you have to adjust for that smoothing. And I think that's a problem that happens a lot when people go into their own practices. They're not quite used to figuring out how to get that to the stable level and then operating at that level. Yeah, gotcha. So it's almost like, you know, I think a lot of the, the, the money stories might be driven by, hey, I need to make a ton of money. And then once they're making a ton of money, 
then it's like, you know, how do I keep this? The, the story is, is how you're spending your money as well, too. Because it's like, you know, you can't be the guy who's driving the, you know, 96 Prius. Well, I don't know if Prius was in the 96, but you get the idea. Like, I don't believe yeah. so, but yeah, that's okay. We can't where you're going. <laughs> yeah. So the partner meeting and then, yeah, and then you're showing up in like a shabby suit. But at the same time, if, you know, you've got some crazy burn rate going in your, your life, like the first year that you have your law practice could be really, really tough. Um, I think so, yeah. And the other piece there too is, we have this also this perception that if you make a lot of money, you are automatically uh, financially healthy. All right. And that the people who are unhealthy financially usually are at a lower socioeconomic class. But what I find in my practice and in my business is that the high earners can be just as likely to have issues with debt. And the analogy I use is the bigger the shovel, the bigger the hole. So it's uh, uh, figuring out how to live within your means and not in a lifestyle that actually is the one you want, not what you think you should have based on what your role is and who you serve. Okay. That's super interesting. And um, definitely it's, it's kind of interesting. Like you see these, gosh, I'm trying to think, and you definitely know this story when he was just like, you know, the, the janitor who got like the $8 million, like, yeah. you know, portfolio yeah. and stuff like that. But it's like, you know, there's people who make a lot less that wind up in a much better position from a wealth perspective. And I'll also say this too, like from kind of the, the you know, the, the business finances perspective too, it's just like, you know, as we've gone from, you know, me basically, basically being a freelancer when I started this to, you know, we got 20, 25 team members right now, the expenses uh, get like more expensive, right? So, you know, if I, you know, when I, if I was messing something up as a freelancer, I, I've, I've said this joke a couple of times to the team. It's like, I was making $500 mistakes as a solo. I was making $5,000 mistakes as a, as a uh, manager. And as somebody who's managing managers, those mistakes are like $50,000 now. And again, it's all part of, of growing the business, but like, you know, it's, it's definitely possible to have those situations, which makes you know, it's not like uh, anything super precarious, but like you, people just have to be kind of like aware of the, these things at the end of the day too. And like, you know, again, like from a personal finance perspective, yeah, like that, it, the ratchet's really, really tough to move down. And if you kind of let yourself get to that point, yeah, it's, it's, it can sometimes kind of be a burden. So I also kind of want to think about this too, because, you know, when going back to that initial thing where, you know, I think most of the advice out there is based on personal finance, mm-hmm. but at what point do people like, does it make sense for a business owner to shift away from focusing on personal finance and over to kind of like corporate finance? Because I think like your lifestyle is probably going to be the biggest line item in the beginning, but at some point it just kind of becomes a, a drop in the bucket. So at what point do people, uh, should people start focusing on the business or going back to lifestyle or, or like, you know, and again, I feel like it's almost like this, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, right? Cause it's like, you start off in the, the personal finance is everything. Then, you know, at some point, at least for me personally, it's business finance is everything. And then you have to transition to the point where, well, how am I getting paid out of all this? Right. So how do you like recommend people kind of like navigate those steps? I have a system that I kind of developed and I think every entrepreneur should know five numbers. Okay. The first number is uh, how much does your ideal life cost on an after-tax basis? Mm -hmm. Right. Within that number, you need to know how much can I freely spend on a week-by-week basis on my lifestyle, and that includes groceries, eating out, all that stuff, with no stress or anxiety. So now I know how much my personal life is going to cost. I've got my vacations in there. I've got my house maintenance in there. Maybe I'm paying down some unwanted student loan debt. I don't know what it is, but you've got all that priced in, right? This is my bottom line that I want. Then we need to take that number over and then go and see how we're going to pay ourselves that out of business. Right. So, you know, is it going to be a salary? Is it going to be dividends? Is it going to be whatever? And then based on that, 
you now, if you, as you grow your business, there's going to be more and more money in the pot to try and figure out what to do with. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that, uh, there's three types of savings we need to think about are timelines, Mm -hmm. one of which is short-term. So in the short term, how much do I need to have kind of sitting around, maybe not working all that hard, but what it does is its job actually is so I don't stress out if something bad happens one month. Yeah, <laughs> so it's every, your buffer you know basically. I mean? yeah. yeah, so it's it's your peace of mind fund, if you will. It's your emergency fund. It's your buffer. Call it whatever it makes you feel happy about it. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. you need your short term and you need your medium term and you need your long term. Now, Depending on what you're doing and your end game is with your firm, if you're building a firm that someday you want to sell, you may want to accumulate assets in another corporate structure outside like a holding company or something like that. So as your business starts to become more profitable, so you're totally funding your life easy peasy, your personal life is funded, you're happy, you're joyful, you're getting what you want. Your business is now producing much more than that is needed to do that. This is when you want to start engaging in a, with a professional to start figuring out some where to put it, how to put it, and where to, and how do you want to structure that. Understanding all that, then there's this thing I call the power number, Jan, and that number is when is the time I'm working because I love it, not because I have to. So what that means is you have accumulated income streams and or you have buckets of assets that are big enough to produce enough to cover all your ideal life until the day you die. Okay, that's fantastic. It's it's actually super funny that you bring that up because we had a podcast that got released a couple of years ago, but it was a much less nice word than that. Have you ever <laughs> the term was uh, uh, "fu money"? <laughs> and, uh, Call but, it whatever makes you happy. But, but this seems like a much more measured and reasonable approach to this. But it's kind of yeah. crazy to think that there is a number out there. But yeah, let's let's kind of uh, double click on that a little bit and, and kind of see okay. what that really represents. So okay, so the power number is the number at which everything's funded, you don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Is that based on like your investments paying off your lifestyle or, okay, what will yeah, yeah, so, okay, so it could be a couple of things. So let's say, and this is why it's important to look at everything in your totality so that if you have personal investments, how are they going to produce an income stream? You have corporate investments up in a hold scope. Maybe you're actually in a position where you're like, any day that I want to sell my business, I know what the price tag is. And that's what I, I can do. I can walk away and sell it. No problem. Right. So we add all those numbers up and see what kind of income flow we can pull it off. And this is why it's important that we understand what we want personally, because that is our after-tax number where I despise all the ads that tell me I need X percent of my pre-retirement income because how do they know what I'm going to do in retirement? Man, maybe I want to take a safari every year. You know, maybe I'm <laughs> going to join a couple of really cool golf clubs. I don't know. And no one else does too. So my, I have done plans where the post after work lifestyle, I'm going to call it after work. Cause I don't like the word retirement. The yeah, after work yeah. lifestyle number was more than the pre-work when they were working just for a bunch of factors. Right. And so that's why we want to make sure we have enough and really look at real numbers. And I mean, sometimes we're guessing at what we're going to want to do, but we can put big chunks so that there's all kinds of flexibility, right? Yeah. Let me uh, ask about something. And this is, I mean, I've definitely been guilty of this in my personal life, but I wonder if there's anyone else in the audience that have this too, but it's like basically throwing everything into the business and just kind of knowing that the, that liquidity event is going to be it, but not necessarily having a number for that or having a backup plan to that event never end up coming. So like, how do you coach people to think about that kind of dilemma? 
So from that dilemma, I think it's so important that we you pay, pay attention to your numbers. And it's very important you understand the levers that you have at your control to actually increase the value of your business. So there's that piece. The second piece is knowing what that business has to sell for to make your power number to 100%, okay? Because there are things you can do. If your law firm has three big clients and they represent like 50% of your business, that is not a sellable business because there's risks in there for the buyer that one of those clients would go away. Well, then the, val the value of your firm is less. So that is different. It's how quickly do you collect on your receivables? That can actually affect the value of your business. How systematized is your business such that if you walked away for three months, it could run without you? That makes it more sellable because you have an operating book, an operating manual, if you will. So there's a whole bunch of ways you can make your business more sellable and more valuable. And those are the things that can really affect your power number. And that's what I think people should focus on too, is thinking about it, whether they intend to sell it or not, if you make it more sellable, it's a better run business. Yeah. And probably like easier to be in, in the long in, in the, on the day-to-day -day basis as well. Cause, and we love talking about systems as well too. <laughs> awesome. really, yeah. And like, I mean, uh, when, if we can go there, like do you, do you do a lot of stuff on the business exit and like valuation side of things? So there's a bunch of different ways to do that. We usually work with certified business valuator type situations. And we try either that or we're going to do a rule of thumb, much as I hate them. But say, for example, we know I was working with a client who had an offer on their business. It was a psychology clinic. Like they had a whole bunch of people. And the multiple was five times their earnings before income taxes and interest, right? Mm -hmm. So we now know if we can build that number up, we're increasing the value of the firm. Right. Because that's the, so if we can find out based on your industry, based on where you're located, et cetera, what are the business people who are selling businesses like yours using as a way of managing your, your value or understanding your value, you now know what you need to do to make it more valuable, right? So in this instance, with the psychology clinic, we have to make sure that, that the income is maximized, expenses are minimized because they're basing it right on that number at the end of those. Okay. That's super interesting. And I've kind of heard some things as well before. Like if you're trying to groom a business for sale, like you really kind of have to have the numbers looking back like a couple of years or something, right? Like this At isn't least, something yeah. yeah, people could just do at the drop of the hat because they get sick of it or whatever. Right. Exactly. And this is why it's also important to make sure you're paying yourself a good chunk of money. Whoever is going to buy your business, what would they be expecting to pay themselves or someone to do what you do? That should already be in the numbers if possible. There's this process called normalization. Have you ever heard of that? No, no, that's new to me. Okay, so normalization is I'm running my business. Well, I also run my cell phone. I uh, somehow managed to write off my trip to Cancun every year. So that's all showing up on my profit and loss statement and my financials, right? Mm -hmm. The person who's buying the business will want those taken out to show what the statements would look like without them because they're not going to pay those things. So they want to see what the business really does. So okay, that's gotcha. normalization. Yeah. And if the profit is, you know, including the salary that you're taking for yourself too, and they have to hire a CEO or somebody end up running the business, then yeah, that's obviously stuff that would be taking out too. Cause that's yeah. also kind of one of those situations you see oftentimes it's like if somebody's, you know, not profiting a ton or breaking, even running something on their own. I mean, the, the truth is that they're, they're running a business that would be sustaining a loss. if it wasn't for the fact that they were, basically donating their time to run it. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that can be, and that might even be as if you have a small firm, that might be your first goal is to make sure that your business gets to the point that you're paying yourself appropriately so that it's funding your life. I'm just going to, a little point there is what I find sometimes is that as entrepreneurs, we sometimes forget that the purpose of a business beyond the services it does and the good it does, it's there to provide cash. So I have a good life. Right. So it's my little cash producing machine and I need to make sure it's producing enough cash, at least initially, so that I can have the life I want so that I'm not feeling deprived or that I can't have what I want. Yeah. I want to go back to the kind of the mindset. How do you think people wind up in a position where they forget about that? Oh, there's so, it could be just that I've been told it's somewhat of a unique perspective that a lot that I bring to that. Uh, thing. So uh, it's just through a lot of coaching that I got there. You yeah. know, I may not have thought of it that way before, but because of just how I'm, how I've been starting to look at entrepreneurs and their money and their building of their wealth even more, that's where I came up with that. Yeah. Well, I can also kind of say too, like, you know, when, when times end up getting tough, it's like a lot of the times, I mean, I think a lot of the people who should be in business the most, the people who claim like, you know, they care a ton about their clients. They care a ton yeah. about those staff. And then sometimes it's like, you know, you're kind of the, the distant third. It's like, if it ends up having something that's, uh, you know, get anything yeah. left over. And, and uh, you know, I think, it, you know, depending on how many hard times people have gone through, it's, it's, it's kind of easy to, to not find your way out of that. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're a servant leader, but not in a great way. <laughs> yeah. I like that. And I think that there's not enough talk in there, you know, there's some bias maybe, or that we don't want to say we've made it or we have this money coming in. So we have to diminish that to some degree because uh, mm. otherwise we're greedy versus, you know, well, listen, I'm doing good work. I'm helping people and I'm making good profit. That's translating into a good lifestyle uh, that I'm not over the top lifestyle. Cause I'm still planning for tomorrow in terms of building wealth elsewhere. Mm. You know, there's, there's just perceptions and to say your mindset question that could have come from birth, right? Like or from our parents and they may have somehow said messages to us that, you know, rich people were bad. Mm-hmm. They're not very good people. So therefore you somehow subconsciously now believe that rich people are bad. So you better not become rich. Yeah. And you'll figure out a way to avoid that for sure. It's, well, <laughs> it's easy to I believe right? the word is self-sabotage. Yeah. Yeah. Bingo, bingo. <laughs> okay. And um, apologies for jumping around too much, but um, right. one, of, one of the things that I was really curious about was, you know, kind of that decision of when you're saving for the business versus saving for the future. So I know that there's something that uh, I hear all the time in personal finance is like, okay, you got to have your six X, your expenses for your monthly expenses. You need that little rainy day fund, right? Mm-hmm. Is there an equivalent for how people should start to think about this in their business? I think it's just exactly the same, right? I think you have to look at, I like to call it how, how shock proof is your business. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could exit your business voluntarily, but you could involuntarily leave your mm-hmm. business. So what would happen then? And how are you going to fund that? So that could be a pot of money or access to capital to fund that. And sometimes you can use uh, insurance policies to help you cover some of those potential costs on a health and related areas. So it's really thinking about, what are the costs? What would happen if I went down for one month? What happens if I go down for two months? What if the market crashes? I mean, if we looked at the pandemic, from my perspective, it really did open our eyes about, oh my gosh, something could happen that I need more than six months, right? Right. So you have to kind of look at your own 
industry, your own setup and make a decision about how far out you need that, right? How much do you need in the short-term bucket? Because that's a short-term bucket, right? Mm-hmm. Of how much do I need there? How much of it's in cash? And maybe I have six months of cash and I have six months of access to credit. Okay, gotcha. And as far as like the, the business itself, like how much cash do you recommend a business keep on hand relative to its expenses? Oh, I would say two to three months, three months would be a nice number there. Yeah. Um, that way you're, you know, if there's a very short term adjustment or you have a major expense or something weird happens, you have some cash. Okay, awesome. And now getting super, super tactical order of operations, which one do we fill up first? You know, are we trying, is it sort of one of those models where, you know, you top off your, uh, your emergency fund, then everything, you know, dollar, whatever that is to whatever, you know, making ends up going into like a thing. So how do you kind of recommend business owners, like think about this stuff and what to fill up first? Well, I would definitely fill up the short-term bucket first. Okay. okay? Gotcha. Because that's the one that's going to keep you uh, the peace of mind bucket, if you recall, we call right. it that early, right? Then you can uh, split your money in between a bunch of different things, depending on how you want to allocate that. Because everything else after that is about evaluating opportunities, right? Because some of the opportunity may be, well, you know, if I invest this much in my business, I can see a return of X. Or if I put this one into this particular uh, rental property or this particular venture, I'm expecting this rate of return. So you can start looking at uh, your risk tolerance, your timelines and things of that nature to make sure you're uh, allocating the additional on top of that to the right place. Okay. Gotcha. And that's a, being kind of a tricky calculation, right? Cause it's like, I feel oh. like a lot of the stuff that's um, you know, whatever, if we're looking at S and P 500, you know, it'll be whatever, 10 to 15% of stuff, but how do people make a accurate prediction on something that might be a, like a lot more volatile? Like, you know, what's the value of investing into like, you know, a really high level mastermind group or something like that? Like oh, how can you kind of predict that's a return on ca- human capital, right? Yeah. I was going to flippantly say it's a magic eight ball, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, I think that it's hard to evaluate the returns on coaching programs. I myself have been in high level coaching for eight or nine years now, mm-hmm. and I cannot it's super hard to sit, make the direct correlation to the fact that because of my coaching, I think bigger, I make different moves and I'm building something bigger because of the exposure I have. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you look at what a mastermind or a high level thing, you are around people who are thinking differently than you or in different industries and you get so much information. Oh, I sat next to so-and-so who runs a marketing firm and they're doing this. I could put that in my law firm, right? So it's hard to measure that, but I honestly think that you investing in yourself has nothing but positive returns. It's just a question how much. Yeah. And I was wondering too, cause like, this is a model I've seen and I've actually got a good friend from Canada as a matter of fact. So he's, uh, his, his family is, uh, they have like a lot of dentists in the family yeah. and I found there's such a stark contrast because I think they actually have recommended budget numbers that they actually do teach in dentistry school, or at least it's common enough that most dentists know it, but like every dentist knows you got to send 10 to 20% of, of your, you know, your, your revenue every year on, on marketing or something like that, which is a standard that doesn't exist in law like whatsoever. But what do you think about as far as like the allocation, you ever think about a budget approach or like how much you're supposed to be like past that point of when you've gotten like, you know, your immediate needs met. And in the side of the business, you mean, how do I deploy extra on marketing and other things? Right. Yeah. So one of the interesting things might be to look at, do an exercise of a customer acquisition cost. So I don't think people look at that enough because 
and then the average value of a client. So if the average value of a law firm client is 10 grand in billable services every year or you know once every five years, how much money did it cost you to get that client? So if it costs you five grand to get a $10,000 client, is that worth it? Because in right. that case, you're just going to spend until you're at capacity because you've got a return rate in. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of that stuff, by the way, Wendy is like, and it's kind of funny if anyone's like a fan of like Shark Tank in the, in the, in the audience, it's like, you know, the first thing that you'll hear out of Mr. Wonderful or Mark Cuban's mouth is, you know, what's your customer acquisition cost? What's the lifetime value? And if that number is high enough, then you're in good shape. The one thing I'll kind of add is like kind of make stuff a little bit murky from the, the law firm perspective. And again, I guess this is probably the truth for most professional services when things are getting started out is that you have this weird situation where referrals are kind of hard to account for. The cost is usually zero, but basically when they get averaged in with other things too, and you know, I'm acutely aware of this because you know, all the services that we provide for clients are usually held to the standard, or at least the smart ones. But basically, you know, we have to kind of figure out what the actual return investment is. And sometimes I see like kind of this weird, funny stuff happening with numbers where it's like, okay, well, if referrals are half of your business and you end up getting X percentage is going to be coming from net new or advertising or something like that. And the total is going to be 10. Like we're, we're expecting a 20 X return on this stuff too. And I'm like, okay, well show me the channel you're getting a 20 X return on, because I don't know, you know, many in the law firm space that are not tied to, you know, <laughs> I, I think this joke is like, if you're getting a consistent 20 X return on your marketing, then, you know, I, I'm probably going to bet that there's like an ATF agent assigned to whatever service that you're providing, but I digress. Uh, <laughs> Kind of where I was getting at too is like it's it's such a worthwhile calculation to have as well too because like a lot of times too, I think the lifetime aspect of that lifetime value is not something that people think about a lot because like you no. know and like when I'm thinking about like you know retainer based stuff comes to mind well you know if your initial retainer your family law attorney is going to be five thousand dollars that client's not worth five thousand dollars look up the average of the last fifty clients you signed and find out how much the actual case ended up costing because it's probably a lot more than five absolutely yeah so if you spent five to get the d- deposit get the, to the engagement level, you're probably going to have a much bigger profit number afterwards. Yeah. And that all backs into the kind of stuff where people get a lot of really, really cool options to do from a marketing perspective. Cause it's like, you know, if you look at most of the, the biggest companies in the world, they're willing to break even on the first sale that they make with the confidence that, you know, they can actually make it back on the back end. That being said, if you have a truly transactional business and it's the one-time thing, then don't delude yourself into thinking you're oh, yeah. going to be the next Google by like spending 100% of your initial pay for the, the customer acquisition cost. Absolutely. And, and I think you'd also have to look at how long it took to activate that lifetime value, right? Yeah. Because if I'm, I'm breaking even on the first engagement, but it's going to be another three years before the next one, how much money do I have to actually spend to nurture them to make sure that they're coming back? Yeah. And I'll also say this too, because like, I feel like people don't talk about this nearly enough. You know, there is a timeline, like, you know, people talk about the number, the actual return of the investment, but they don't talk about when that re- investment's going to be returned. And there's yeah. dramatically different timelines on this stuff. And, and this is something that um I ended up hearing this from someone I looked to up a lot in the operations perspective is like, if you never have a situation where a marketing investment ends up being under 30 days, then you've gotten to the point where you're not scaling on your money, you're scaling on your credit cards, money, which is basically the bank's money. Can we talk about access to credit and that kind of stuff for a little bit too? Because like, I feel like this is something that very, very 
frightening in the personal finance space. There's a lot of guys with the credit card in the ice block or, you know, the taking the photo of cutting stuff in half. But how do you recommend people start thinking about this personal versus business? Yeah. So what I tell people prior to embarking on entrepreneurship is get access to all the credit you can, because for the first two to three years of running a business, they're not going to really give you a whole lot. Right. Right. I'm not saying use it. I'm just saying get access to it in case of emergency. And I think what it has to be is again, coming up with a, your ideal life. If you've incurred unwanted personal debt, starting up your business or whatever it is, is having a structured, smoothed approach to dealing with it. Meaning that there's a couple of different ways that people will look at that is they'll make a list of all the debts they have. I owe 5,000 here. It's costing me 19.99%. Here's my minimum payment. And you make that whole list all the way down. And uh, so you can actually see what all your minimum payments are. And you can see your total amount because people have this nasty habit of compartmentalizing their debt and not mm-hmm. necessarily looking at the big number because it's scary. But you have, if you can get the courage to face it, make that list, then what you do is your minimum payments have to be made. The next step, figure out which one you're going to tackle first, which one are you going to pay off first? And so there's a couple of different rules, uh, schools here. This one school of thought says you take the most expensive debt. And you tackle that one first because that's the most amount of interest. But my preferred method is to actually pick the smallest one. I don't care how much it costs. What I want to do is get you a win. I want you to win so that that one's paid off as fast as possible. And then you take what you were paying on that one and put it on the next one. So minimum payments, how much extra do you have to put on the debt? Pick someone who's going to be your target first. Go after that target. And then when that one's gone take all your cash that you were paying on that one and put it on the next target. Okay. Gotcha. Now, would this be like, in terms of the order of operations, like, you know, this is a dilemma that like, you know, I've definitely faced in the past too. I don't have any of the listeners have as well, but like, you know, let's say that we had a situation where we had a really attractive hire that had a good path to profit. How do we weigh the benefits of taking on an additional salary versus maybe paying off some extra business debt? Hmm. I'd look at the cost of the debt versus the potential upside. So in, I've always been told that you should expect to make three times the salary of somebody. So if that person's costing you 50 grand, you should expect to bring in 150. So Mm -hmm. 50 goes to them, hundred goes to the house, if you will. Yeah. That is a way bigger rate of return than the cost of your. Okay. So if you're looking at it from a purely numbers perspective, that's how I would look at it. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So in a lot of instances too, and like, this is kind of the thing that ends up getting, you know, I can definitely say <laughs> as, as sort of a cowboy entrepreneur at times too, it's like, for me, it's always easy to say like, look, this is, you know, this is the upside. This is the big money. As long as I'm not going to get toasted in the, in the meantime too. And I've, uh, you know, <laughs> so more recently than I care to admit, but uh, far enough back where it should be anything to worry about. It was just like, you know, sometimes to, you have to kind of invest your way out of those things sometimes too. And again, yeah. it's tough, but at the end of the day too, it's like, you know, if you have that extra hundred grand, it's like, you know, You'd have to uh, skip a lot of lattes to to pay that <laughs> to pay that money off in ways that are either a personal finance perspective or kind of skimming stuff off the top. So we'll call it leveraging, right? So you're taking a fifty thousand dollar asset to make one hundred and fifty thousand, right? And honestly, it's kind of interesting when you boil it down to like the language of finance too. It's like, I mean, what we really have access to as business owners is a different class of assets that other people might not have. So it's like you can kind of you know 
play with that. And again, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. It's just all even deeper. But if yep. people have a sure thing, then then it might be a better idea to go for that instead of you know getting down to the uh, you know the the more you know conventionally recommended stuff for the personal finance, right? Yeah. Well, and I mean, I, I, I'm going to put my little asterisk here. If you have debt that right now is variable, if you have debt that is got time bound, like you bought furniture uh, for free for three years and three years is coming up, get that paid off because there's probably some penalties in there if you don't. Right. So I would analyze your debt because there might be some debts that it makes more sense to pay off because of the penalties of not doing it or the costs are going to increase because of not doing it. Okay. Super cool. Yeah. So many factors to talk about and just to, uh, to kind of like, um, you know, make this to, to a little bit more of the forward thinking stuff. So how do you start thinking? So let's say, you know, you got your debt, you got your, you know, your rainy day funds all, all, all booked up for yourself and the business. What kind of investments are you recommending people take as business owners? And is that any different than what you'd recommend for somebody just, you know, a, a well-off producer that has a salary? Well, there would be different uh, options available for a business owner. My tool test is a little bit different and bigger because there are more, uh, products and, and um, systems that might be available versus personal. But when it comes down to choosing things, there's a, you know, it comes, it, I don't think that the criteria changes too much. We want to know what the risk tolerance you have is, what your timelines are. And those things alone, those two are two big things that will help you decide, does this investment make sense, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can get to the level of which one will make me the most money and get me closer to my power number. But yeah. first you got to start with risk tolerance and uh, timeline. Cause there's some things uh, that in the short term are so volatile that um, you don't want to count on them for something. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And just because it's been all everywhere, like are, are you recommending people do anything different? Like I'm sure people ask you about inflation all the time. Like, you know, is mm. this something that people should be planning for? I know like, you know, these cycles will come and go, but like, how does that change how somebody's going to look to allocate assets at the point where they're flush? Well, it's what it's going to do is, is escalate the importance of finding return, right? So mm. I think your rate of uh, inflation now is between six and 7%. So that means that your investment has to return six to 7% just to break even. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're going to be looking for what can make, where can you get a little bit above that? Interest rates are going to have a factor on that. The Fed just reached in the US just re- raised theirs. In Canada, we just raised ours. So that's going to affect the cost of capital. It's going to affect a few other things. So it's almost like there's a lot of moving parts that inflation affects, but it's also the reactions to getting it down are affected as well. So you have to package all those things in and look at them, not in isolation, but across uh, the wider spectrum. Yeah. See, that sounds pretty complicated. I think it'd be helpful to get something to to help out on that stuff. (laughs) Absolutely. I wish that's the uh, problem, you know, sometimes it depends answer, but here are some of the factors we would look at. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. So Wendy, this has been an awesome hour and I want to kind of, uh, you know, we've, we've gotten across a lot of different topics, but, you know, Mm -hmm. I still think that, you know, this has been um, super illustrated for me, but for anyone who's been like really following these conversations is like, what's, you know, what's a good way to enter your world? What's a good way to take a next step? As a business owner, the easiest way to enter my world is actually to take my, uh, financial and wealth diagnostic. And it's a super fast 15 question where we're going to evaluate three areas, your mindset, 
your systems and your actions and see if they're actually, if you're set up to grow your wealth from those three perspectives. And once you do the assessment, you get a free report that's customized for you. Okay. And then, yeah. And that's at totalwealthscore.com. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and get that. The make sure we're going to have that in the show notes as well. But um, yeah, Wendy, thanks again. Like this has been a super uh, wide ranging conversation, but it's because there are so many damn factors for it too. There are a ton of factors and that's what makes it complicated. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, it's hard enough from a personal perspective, but yeah, it's like, you know, with all these different things too, I feel like I've gotten a lot of clarity on how to kind of get these things into at least the same language, a couple of different things, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Super appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. All right. And for everybody else, I will see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.